Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of the co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week, sir? I'm very well, man. Um, we're trying to do what we used to do uh, semi-well, uh, what, six months back or whatever, which is communicate communicate with each other in some kind of coherent way through the magic of Skype. Um, yeah, hopefully it works out fine for this episode because we've got lots of good stuff to get into. Shall I give a little rundown of this week's show there? Uh, yes, why ever not, sir? So... As you may well know if you were listening last week, we have reintroduced the former format of the show. This is a format that walks you through a trip to the cinema. We start off with a section called In the Foyer, where we're going to discuss film news and issues in the world of film. Then we get into a section called Popcorn Movies. This is where Paul and I are going to throw around short-form reviews of films we've been watching this past week. Then we get into the sort of cinema section itself, and we give some previews of films that are upcoming in the week ahead. This is coming attractions we then get into the center of the show which is our feature reviews this week we've got two paul what are we covering for the listening pleasure of our listeners we are covering this week we're covering uh hobbs and shaw the latest in the fast and furious series and the first spin-off and then the it's fair to say dark film drama holiday which is certainly making some waves um in the film community and on film forums everywhere at the moment so we're going to cover both of those as our feature reviews this week not as sunny as it might first appear that film either from the title or the poster after the feature reviews are are done with then we'll get into the last section of the show that's always called credits but it changes exactly um, what we're doing in terms of giving credit to something each week this week what we're going to do is a quick rundown of our individual top five films of the year January through June, so the first six months, that uh, first chunk of the year, so that when we get to our films of the year that we do at the end of every year, we can look back and see how those films fared when it came to getting into our final top, probably 10 list is usually what we'll do there. We're keeping it to five this week, but there's going to be, I I guess, some some great stuff to cover um, in that section of the show. But before any of that, Paul, how are you at the moment? I feel like I've just kind of run straight into the running order and I haven't even asked you if you're okay. I'm all right, Pete. I've been been doing a lot of cycling, which is quite exciting. I've been doing... I did 40 miles the other day, so I went from Bath to Devizes and there's a a run of Lockgate, so people are falling asleep. Yeah, I'm well, Pete. I'm well. How are you? No, I mean that is pretty impressive though. When you when you tell me about these distances on your bike, I mean because I don't really I I bought a bike, didn't I Paul? I bought a bike from yes. you and it's kind of become like an ornament in my house. Uh, the cat sits on it. She likes to imagine that she's allowed out to go cycling. Uh, I've taken it out on the road, probably a total that I could count on about 60% of one hand. So um <laughs> Yeah, not not the best investment I ever made, but it's still got potential. For my own part, I'm trying to stay fit like you are, but um, through running. So I've been doing sort of running club meetups three times, three or four times a week, uh, the last couple of weeks. Which, it's a weird thing, isn't it, Paul? Once you start doing a bit of exercise on a consistent basis, you suddenly like catapult yourself into feeling really superior. 
like oh I've always been quite quite an athlete even though you may have only given it yeah like five or six sessions so yeah basically um I'm gonna probably I don't normally get it. to five or six sessions personally but I feel I feel like I'm an athlete after sort of one session but I seem to be keeping up the bike ride and I'm going out again in the morning but I know what you I know where you're coming from and then you kind of you kind of look down on people going well I've been I've been a runner for ages <laughs> yeah yeah well me Paul it's going to be London Marathon I've already entered the ballot uh God knows why oh. and for you it's going to be the Tour de France yes so on my mountain we've bike said it yeah, here absolutely first. yeah I'm going to it's be happened. the first person to complete the Tour de France on a mountain bike <laughs> exactly trailblazer <laughs> Right. So, uh, yeah, allegedly we have a film podcast. It's called Strange in the Cinema and it will start about now. So um, some news for us to get to this week as I scramble for notes. First of all, we've got the news that Andy Serkis has been confirmed as the director of Venom 2, the follow up to the, um, I'm going to say, not wholly successful uh, Venom movie of last year or this year. I, can't I think it did a billion at the box office, though. So I would say from Sony's perspective, quite successful, but... Right. Yeah, terror, yeah. a terrible film. <laughs> it just one of those that felt a bit like um, muddled and a bit like too many um, cooks had sort of spoiled the broth or something. I don't know. There was something a bit off about that movie. I thought. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of. I wasn't a fan of the original Venom at all. In all honesty, I came out of it thinking, "Why did I waste my time with it?" Um, but that being said, I am a bigger fan of Andy Serkis. Um, I quite liked. Well, I say I quite like. Did I quite like it? Mowgli on Netflix. I quite enjoyed that. I think he's an interesting. He's certainly a talented guy in terms of his acting and an interesting filmmaker. So I'm more intrigued by the. I like. I like the character of Venom. I like the concept of Venom. I just thought the film Upgrade, which I don't know if you've seen yet, just did a from last year did a better job of of the kind of the similar themes. Um, but I'm yeah. I'm. I think this is good. I, no issue. Andy Serkis directing a superhero film at all. Yeah, the only issue I have is I think the early publicity for this signing of Andy Serkis describes him as visionary director Andy Serkis, and I don't know if we're quite there yet with his body of work to start calling him visionary. But um, yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I was looking forward to Venom 2 because I think the first one's trash, but uh, we'll wait and see because like you say, it's a sort of steadier hand on the tiller, I guess, in terms of Andy Serkis. Moving on from that one, um, Netflix has been in the news this last uh, week or so, um, fairly unsurprisingly, given that it's an absolute behemoth when it comes to the whole film landscape at this point. Two things really to uh, pull up here. One, there was an article published on IndieWire that stated that nine um, limited series or limited run series have recently been canned by the Netflix uh, platform. And those, all of those nine were created or co-created by females. Um, this was then made into sort of a bigger article and bigger discussion of whether there is sort of a discriminatory, discriminatory nature to the way in which Netflix is cutting the, um, I don't know, the, 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 the less popular or less in-demand stuff on their platform. This, this article highlighted things like Orange is the New Black and um, Kimmy Schmidt and the OA. What I felt though, Paul, and I'd like to hear your opinion here, is that a number of these shows, if you just separate them out, have a story behind them that would give you good reason to understand them coming to well, an Orange end. Is Either... No, sorry, just to finish, yeah, yeah. either that they're maybe they're just they've just run their course, 
or that the most recent series maybe wasn't the best work. And in that sense, I'm looking maybe at the OA, which was you know a fantastic series, I think, in the first series, and I think it's lost its way a little bit. Um, where, where do you stand on this one? I think yeah, I think it, I I can see why people would would jump to conclusions that maybe they're thinking oh they're just deliberately cancelling female female sort of filmmakers' work. I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I mean, Orange is the New Black was a show that I kind of yeah, Orange is the New Black is on what series six now I think. Um, now that for me that could just be a show coming to its natural end in fairness um, and ultimately no shows no shows can run forever and I think the thing is is what people need to what people don't always grasp with Netflix is that it is still a money it is still an organisation that is there to make money and and I think early doors with Netflix I think they were probably a lot friendlier and perhaps came across a lot friendlier and more as this more of this kind of creative home where you could make anything you wanted to Netflix would still continue to put it out I mean um it's the horror series Hemlock Grove is a prime example of that it was never great but seemed to go on and on and on and on and on and I think now they've become a lot more mercenary with what they need to put out I think they're aware that Disney Plus is sniffing at the door that Disney want that market and I just think they need to be more I think they're they're having to be more mercenary with the shows that get the viewers in and make them and bring viewers in I don't think it's any more sinister than that myself yeah, I think that's right. And I think that historically they, they like an announcement, don't they? I mean, Netflix like a reveal. They like to reveal, oh, here's a new thing, here's a new mm. thing, here's a new thing. Because that's how you drive that increased customer base, right? And that doesn't necessarily follow when it comes to here is the renewal for the fifth season or third season of a, of a thing that maybe isn't doing great numbers. Obviously, you know, last week we were talking about the great hack and all of this shadowy uh, sort of stealing of data or hiding of hiding of sort of what's been stolen. Netflix is a platform that, notoriously doesn't really tell us what gets what figures, what makes what money and what costs what. I mean, all of that information is kept behind a kind of uh, wall of, of sort of secrecy and, and um, uh, smoke and mirrors and stuff like that. So it's very hard to analyse something like this with numbers. Instead, it's all kind of conjecture and I guess think pieces like this one send you down a particular course that I don't feel too comfortable going down, particularly because, you know, you pick out potted examples like the ones that they have talked about in the in the piece on IndieWire. Okay, so the biggest limited series that's been released recently, I would say, is uh, When They See Us, which is directed by Ava DuVernay. So, I, yeah, I, I think that it depends what you look at and you can kind of find examples to prove your point, whatever point it is you're trying to make. And I'm not sure it's anything maybe more than that. No, I, I would tend to agree with you. And, uh, yeah, you just need to bear in mind it's, it's a money-making organisation at the end of the day. And if you want an indication of how someone's doing it, like, it's a shame. Like, no one, everyone's had a show that they don't want that they're into and then it gets cancelled. And some incredible series that have been cancelled. Deadwood's a prime example of a show that was cut off by HBO and it's prime. So it's not a new Netflix thing to cancel shows. I think they're probably just looking for stories where there aren't any, to be honest, um, would be my thought on that. Yes. Uh, talking of stories, though, Paul, there's a, the, I promised the second one involving Netflix, and it kind of ties into the first one. This is the idea some people are throwing about on the internet, that Netflix is somehow in trouble. And as I saw one commenter on Twitter, uh, who's got a decent following, say, they are over there at Netflix Towers, freaking out about this quarter's figures being down on expectations. Um, to, to which uh, read, well, I don't know if it was that commenter directly, but to the general idea that Netflix is, is doing badly, at least in, in this particular period of time, Reed Hastings, the, the CEO, I believe, of the company, uh, sort of leaned back in his golden chair and said, our, our position 
is excellent. And I would tend to believe him, uh, considering we're talking here about a drop-off of about 115,000 subscribers in the US, when you're getting in a new subscriber base far in excess of that, even in the US in isolation. So, yeah, do you think there's any legs to the idea that Netflix might be on the wane? Uh, I can see it from both sides, to be honest, because if you read into the, the whole Netflix in terms of the new content, with the amount of new content that they've put out, they have borrowed a lot of money to fund it. But that being said, they might have lost 115,000 subscribers, but I think the price is going up again in the UK soon. So they'll probably balance it out with price rises and they're going to lose subscribers on, on price rises. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that, Paul, because yeah, this uh, 115,000, I think it's somewhere around there, figure from the US market came, uh, people speculate, as a direct result of a price hike in the US market. So whether you'd see a bit of a drop off, probably like you say, you probably will in the UK too. But it's just that if that content keeps rolling out, it feels like having Netflix is almost a default for a lot of people these days. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting point, actually. And I was talking about this with someone at work. I, if they keep putting the price, I think it's rumoured to be going up to like 11 a month, which again doesn't sound like much, but works out quite a, a chunk of change over the course of the year. If it keeps going up, I would personally i don't know whether whether i'd be happy with the amount of what i consider quality content on it i think for sort of five to six pound a month you kind of don't really worry about it and you go even if even if one or two things are good and eight things are bad then i'm happier paying that subscription but for me with say disney plus around the corner for the star wars stuff is kind of what i want it for there there is you know and movie has got a, a permanently sort of incredible range of films on it i think it's a crowded marketplace and i think if netflix want to keep subscribers and it's 11.99 a month for me i would say their original content needs to get better than it is at the moment yeah and, and just whilst we're here because we haven't talked about this for absolutely ages if they could just fuck off the thumbs up thumbs down thing, yeah. <laughs> i would have a lot more yes. reason to stay on board in the long term um, uh, just a couple more to finish us off. So uh, there was a movie that came out last year that we talked about on this show that was really, really good, I thought, from a director called Anish Chaganti. That was the, the movie Searching with John Cho. Yes. That director has a new movie in the pipeline. It's called Run, and it's been given an official release date of January 2020, so not that far away. Uh, the details of the plot, pretty scant, but what we do have is a debuting, um, I believe in features anyway, debuting actress who plays a character called Daughter, uh, her mother is played by Sarah Paulson, and Sarah Paulson's character has raised her daughter, who is in a wheelchair, in almost complete isolation for the entirety of her upbringing to the point of where we come in with this movie. But apparently she holds, this is Sarah Paulson's character, holds some kind of deep, dark secret that's going to be revealed in the runtime. I think this director is really, really interesting, and I think what he pulled off with Searching was pretty is incredible, to be honest. Is this going to be, be sort, of web sort of browser-based again, in the same way that Searching was, or we don't know at this point? That's a fantastic question, and, and I just don't know, and I don't think those details are actually out there yet. I might I might be wrong. Um, I kind of hope it isn't, personally. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. I'm with you, because otherwise it's going to start to uh, sort of paint him into a corner as a director who can only do that thing. I mean, that is where he comes from in terms of his background, I think, and working in tech mm. before working in, in movie production. But exciting anyway, if... You know, we often get this with second films. It's such a test of a director because we have so many first-time features where we're raving about this exciting new talent and maybe the second one cools that enthusiasm a little bit. So hopefully that's not the case with Run. January 2020, as I say, is not too far away. And then the last one for this week's Roundup, Paul, 
Adam Wingard, I know, is sort of one of your favourite directors. I think in when it comes to sort of thriller, horror stuff, and he's been attached. He's been attached to uh, the work of maybe not one of your favourite directors in Paul W S. A good name, though, isn't it? Uh, his, <laughs> he, he has indeed. His film Event Horizon from way back in the nineties is being given a limited run series, and Adam Wingard apparently is taking the reins on that. Does that sound good to you? Yes, I'm all over that. I'm all over. I actually don't particularly dislike Event Horizon. It's not. It's not great, but I think it's. I would say it's Paul W S Anderson's strongest film. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with you on much, that bold yeah. statement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the the director of every video game adaptation in the world, who's been phoning it in his entire career, made Event Horizon, and and yeah, it's it's, it's probably his best work. <laughs> um, cool. That brings us to the end then of In the Foyer, but we will be back after this short break with the section that we lovingly refer to as Popcorn Movies. Right, and back we are with Popcorn Movies. Um, I'm going to go first because I'm quite excited uh, to tell you about a mistake I made with watching this film, which I did admit to on Instagram if anyone read that. So I think you had mentioned a while ago a film called Bloodsport starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Is there some kind of creepy gym owner or something in this film? Does that does that ring a bell? Or there's, there was something in Bath in, named in yeah. There was something in Bath named after someone from the a character from Bloodsport, which I think is. I th- oh, that's probably right. It was a while ago we did that episode when we did like favorite like combat films or yeah, something like that, yeah. and it and it pushed me to watch Bloodsport for the first time in my life, and I feel like I'd been missing out. So I sat there and thought I sat I was I was at work the other day and I thought Do you know what. I'll pick up that Bloodsport film that Pete's been banging on about on Blu-ray. So I duly went off and I ordered it. Uh, it turned up. I put it in the player. I was quite excited to sit down and watch it. And I was just like, you fucking bellend. You've ordered Kickboxer. Uh, <laughs> so I've seen Kickboxer, it turns out, about four or five times in the past. Uh, and I watched Kickboxer again. It's a really nice Blu-ray transfer, Pete. I can tell you that much. They've done a, really, they've got, they've done a nice job of high definition in it. Uh, that's not a term. Uh, it also contains the sequel stress remake Kickboxer Vengeance with Batista with Dave Batista in it, which I haven't watched and probably won't. Uh, so yes, Kickboxer from 1989, uh, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, directed by Mark Dussel and David Wirth. Um, yeah, um, yeah, it's a film uh, for sure. Um, I would say I'm not a big fan of the the term "so good, so bad, it's good," but I would say this is definitely so bad it's funny. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme cannot act in this at all Um, the fight scenes are absolutely ridiculous Uh, the film is absolutely ridiculous the closest thing I compare it to is probably Commando or something similar Um, Kickboxer is just basically the bastard child of a rip-off of Karate Kid and Rocky IV um, I think is the best way I can describe it Um, the highlight is where Jean-Claude Van Damme kicks down a tree I think. Um, I don't really have much more to say about Kickboxer than that, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, that's um, a pretty major highlight, yeah, though. Yeah, um, yeah, it's rubbish. Um, but ve- yeah, it's you, enjoyable you... 80s toss, um, but it's not Bloodsport. And I still haven't seen Bloodsport, but I have not seen Kickboxer for an- another right. time. <laughs> and I was going to say, Paul, I, I did a little work for you behind the scenes here, just in case you were tempted by Kickboxer Vengeance. There's actually a third one, Kickboxer Retaliation, that I think I've talked about on this show as right, well. Okay. But in in Vengeance, you can't look forward to maybe a, a, a tree being kicked down, but you can look forward to uh, GSP, George St. Pierre, right. uh, MMA superhero, playing like an alcoholic guy who's still really good at fighting, even though he's always drunk. And uh, yeah, it, it's also terribly, terribly shit. <laughs> right. But after seeing that, 
I also watched Retaliation. So there's definitely something in there uh, about these kind of big, dumb movies that didn't need to be made that was a uh, Fine. So at some point I watched Bloodsport. Um, but what's your first popcorn movie? <laughs> well, it kind of uh, fits in lockstep with what we've been talking about here, but maybe not quite as dumb or disposable. This one is a movie that I'm going to champion a little bit. It's on Netflix streaming at the moment. It's called Fury, F-U-R-I-E. And this happens to be currently the highest grossing uh, film in Vietnamese film history, which again sounds maybe like a low bar or, or flattering or flattering faint praise or, or something like that. But um, it's a good film. It's an action film. It's a lot of hand-to-hand combat. If you like things like Tony Jaa movies and uh, things like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess Tony Jaa is a good comparison in terms of stuff that's come out in the last 10 or 15 years. At the centre of this one is an actress called Veronica Ngo um, and it's directed by somebody called Lee Van Kiet. I'm butchering both of those I'm sure (laughs) but um, what we've got at the centre as you always need in a film like this is a really kind of magnetic central figure. Um, Veronica Ngo's character is spends the film pretty much tracking down um, her young daughter who's been kidnapped and seemingly is going to be sold into some kind of human trafficking, child human trafficking ring. It sounds all a little bit like what happens when Liam Neeson's daughter goes to follow you 2 on tour <laughs> and then that all goes horribly wrong in, in the first Taken movie. And, and that's about where the similarities with that, um, I think, uh, end. This one does a much different and, and perhaps better job of staging like hand-to-hand combat stuff. There's like loads of low-angle shots. You get quite tight in there. It's well choreographed. It doesn't feel amateurish, given that the Vietnamese film industry is pretty small and developing all the time. What I think this one maybe lacks is a bit, in terms of the combat, is a bit of like pulling out and a bit of perspective. Um, a film like Chocolate, the, uh, the Thai film that I talked about mm. a little while ago and we did that Combat Movies Countdown, does a bit of a better job of like pulling you out so that you can see the range of like enemies that are around our protagonist at any one time or like the scope of the environment that they're in and so maybe this one falls down a little bit there but you know if you want sort of an hour and a half of dumb fun and people getting kicked in the river then uh this is this is a good movie (laughs) yeah maybe put it second it's a bit of an upturn in quality perhaps um yeah yeah that one was called fury what else have you got Uh, so i've got a film um recommended by uh zig bingham who guested uh, a couple of weeks back on the show um and i had to ship this in from the us this is uh, a film called fast color um, which I think came out in 2018 in the US, but is yet to receive a UK release. So Lionsgate, if you're listening, please release this. Um, this is stars Gugu Mbatha Raw, uh, who is definitely a favourite of the show, um, and definitely a favourite of yours, I think, Pete. If that's that's fair to say, um, I think mm. she's a great actress um, and should be more famous than she is. And maybe if they release this wider, it might help. Um, so yeah, the, the kind of the crux of this is uh, Gugu Mbatha Raw's character is forced to go on the run when she is discovered to have superhuman abilities. Years after having abandoned her family, the only place she has left to hide is home. So basically, she returns home um, after being tracked down by the government, returns to her mother, who've, who's also got superpowers. So we're in kind of superhero-esque territory here, but we're not in superhero-esque territory in the way of such like sort of massive bombast in the MCU kind of thing. I would say this feels like um, very much has a kind of midnight special feel to it. Mm. Um, so a lot more lo-fi a lot more grounded there are some really nice 
really nice um, creative effect shots um, which work well but you're never that's never the, the crux of the movie really um, it's more of a, 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 fam, a film about there's definitely elements of race here it's nice to see that all of the char- all of the main characters here are black women with superpowers um, that you can't really understate that it's something that kind of stays with you as, as the film goes on um, it certainly yeah make, makes an incredibly powerful statement um, and for me provided a really good antidote to like Spider-Man Homecoming which I didn't which if you listen to that show I didn't go much on and kind of the, the as I mentioned earlier the bombast of like summer summer uh, superhero films there's other ways to do superhero films that keep things interesting um, and this is very much one of those films so yeah if you get a chance to see it um, uh, do so if you've got a multi-region Blu-ray player then import it um, but try and get hold of it any way you can I thought it was really really good um, really really solid really really solid film and I enjoyed it a lot that's Fast Colour and Lionsgate please release it in the UK <laughs> yeah yeah that was one when you you put up something about that that I thought yeah if there's any way to, to get hold of it that would be fantastic and like you say hopefully it I, it's the kind of thing I can imagine just dropping on Netflix I imagine Lionsgate would just sell it to Netflix and it will appear it will appear without any fanfare so keep an eye on it if it does appear on there I'll, I'll be the first to share it over our social media because it is it's well worth your time it's, it's good really good cool um, one that is available right now I'm going uh doubling up on Netflix this week uh, is the Red Sea Diving Resort this is one that we previewed on last week's show in the coming attractions section um, it is from or directed by director Gideon Raff um, not really aware of his previous work but I think it's been televisual and, and sort of production and work it works on Homeland I believe I said last week um, this one stars Chris Evans um, Alessandro Navola Michael Kenneth Williams that we, we got around to at the end last oh, week wow. in terms of getting his, <laughs> yeah. act, his actual <laughs> name right yeah Omar is easier to remember. Um, so, Paul, I, I'll keep it brief. This one, have you seen no, it? No, I tried to fit it in today, but I ran out of time, unfortunately. So. Okay, because I, I don't want to sort of throw cold water on it and sort of ruin it ahead of time for anyone, and I'm hopefully not going too hard on it. But I think you'll understand what I mean, and maybe listeners will understand what I mean if I say it's that kind of Netflix-style sort of quasi-historical drama. Right. They've done a number of these. Um, these kind of films which are rooted in something that happened in history but then they uh, the algorithm or something has told them that to tell a story like that you need sort of like a, a some levity you need some light moments you need a little bit of humor um, but you also need some sort of deadly serious context and you also need some sort of a-list or near a-list talent to really pull eyeballs to the thing so this does feel very much the result of some kind of algorithm that's directed at someone like me or you who might be interested in sort of history and and mainstream actors and a few things together um but that's not complimentary really because this subject matter which is about um the escape of ethiopian um refugees in the late 1970s doesn't really uh give i think the necessary seriousness color and detail to the story of these people it also does this other thing where it gives almost no attention to the efforts and um suffering of the ethiopian refugees in the situation that they were in because what we have is a group led by chris evans character who are uh, israelis who task themselves as a sort of government or extra government initiative with delivering safe passage to these refugees across the ocean by getting them onto boats and getting them out uh, using sort of holiday tour buses from this fictional resort that is uh, created and sort of becomes a real resort during the, the plotting of the film as well. 
Um, however, in order to get to that destination of the diving resort, these refugees have had to take, as it says in one sentence in this movie, a thousand kilometre journey by foot. But the film's not really interested in that. It's interested in the white hero and it's interested in, you know, this bit of heroism here. It it just all felt a bit like, um, a bit flat for me and a bit glib and a bit um, unnecessary. Um, I want stories like this to be fleshed out and I want them to be dealt with with the, the level of seriousness and detail that they deserve. And I don't really feel like this film achieved that so that's a bit of a downer isn't it if you're, if you're looking to check this I was going to watch it after the show out. I probably won't now <laughs> but, but Paul none of those crimes are as bad as the anachronistic use of a Duran Duran track that hadn't come out in the year that the film is set so I mean no, fair enough. That's, yeah. that's really damning damning this production but yeah I don't know there's maybe things for other people here maybe that kind of Netflix drama works for you more uh, it didn't work for me and I didn't really think much of it what else have you got? Have you got one I have more? got one more, yeah. So I caught up with a film, again, I haven't seen for years. Uh, this is Half Nelson, directed by Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who I didn't realise until I rewatched this film, uh, ended up going on to direct last year's Captain Marvel. Or this year's, this year's Captain Marvel? This year's Captain Marvel, I think, if I remember rightly. Mm. Uh, yeah, interestingly enough. Um, yeah, so this uh, features uh, an early performance from, um, why have I forgotten his name? Ryan Gosling, he's quite famous. Uh, yeah, so an early performance from Ryan Gosling. Weird to see him before he's hit the gym as well in this film, um, because he's yeah, he's, he's definitely a slightly, slightly less physically intimidating man in, in this film. But yeah, so this is when Ryan Gosling was certainly on the up and up. You had Half Nelson followed... I forget which order they came out in. No, Half Nelson, Lars and the Real Girl. So probably his two breakout films, I think. Um, in this, he plays um, a uh, an idealistic teacher um, who, mm. uh, yeah, an idealistic teacher in kind of a rundown he's, he's always, school. He, yeah, he's always talking about the dialect. Yes. And the sort of forces of history yeah. and stuff like that in his in his sort of uh, scantily um, adorned apartment where he sort of lives on his own and reads paperback books and yeah, stuff. So yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's where we're at. With yeah, him absolutely. He's, he's certainly a stereotypical teacher character, shall we say? I think I don't think that's unfair to say. But no, for for the most part, I, I really enjoyed this film again. It's not the most. It, it wobbles, I think, in terms of how engaging it is at times. I think it's, it's possibly slightly too long in places. But for me, it's a look back, and we did a feature a while, quite a while ago now, I think probably top five Ryan Gosling performances. Um, it shows a level of humanity that I don't think we've seen as much of in recent Ryan Gosling films. And I think it certainly, it's it's one of his, for me, one of my favourite performances of his, I think. And I think he he carries the film with material that could have been a bit twee and a bit overwrought, and it could have kind of rubbed it in your face. A bit like there's a film that I didn't like at all short term 12 which I, I didn't get on with at all because I found that very very overbearing um, and emotive with too much messaging and for me the Ryan Gosling performance in Half Nelson stops the film being this um, it's not just down to Ryan Gosling the script the script's pretty tight the end's good but yeah no it's, it's, it's interesting it's interesting to watch it's a solid film it's interesting to watch back now with Ryan Gosling being the megastar that he is today kind of look back to the kind of earlier stuff that he started out in so yeah well worth a look still yeah, and and the times in Gosling's career where the inner conflict wasn't so very self-serious mm. as maybe it is now, because yeah, you have this movie, you have Blue Valentine, you have Lars and the Real Girl, where you like see these sort of nuanced performances and this like fragility to his yeah. characters, which I feel like has maybe been steamrolled by by the sort of success that he's had later. But yeah, I'm with you. Half Nelson, really good. 
Um, last one for me, not that good. Keep it short. Uh, this is the film Otherhood. Again, we previewed it last week, and it's again on on the Netflix platform. Uh, Has he been uh, out this week? Not, not, started, <laughs> not really, man. I just wanted to fit some stuff in without having to leave my house. Uh, this one, yeah, Otherhood, directed by Cindy Chupac and starring a trio uh, of ladies, Angela Bassett, Patricia Arquette and Felicity Huffman. Uh, it doesn't work at all. It, uh, Otherhood, the title, first of all, um, comes from the idea of dropping the M, uh, as they do very clunkily a couple of times in this movie to reveal that motherhood uh, at a certain point becomes otherhood because you become estranged from the sons that you've raised. I think they're all sons in the case of this movie. Um, and you therefore are sort of free-floating and don't really know what to do with yourself. Now, that as a subject matter for a movie could be mm. um, mined for laughs uh, very effectively. It could be mined for sort of pathos and, and maybe drama. Instead, here, it's just limp. And it's one of those movies, Paul, where you feel like it's been rushed as well in production because, you know, neither you or I would claim to be sort of professional experts in things like editing or sound design. So where someone like, you know, you or me, I mean, you more so with the audio stuff, I guess, but like with when I notice bad editing, it must be really bad editing because I'm not, you know, tuned in closely enough to really pick mm. up on that kind of thing probably most of the time. There are scenes here that end at a very strange cut point, almost like they've decided to cut a section that followed in the natural play out of that scene, but they've just taken the, you know, the sort of metaphorical scissors to it because the next bit worked even less than the bit that they kept in the film. So many jokes fall flat. So many of the people involved seem like they're not quite convinced by the material themselves. And it's a shame. Pa Patricia Arquette is better than this. I mean, Felicity Huffman's better than this. And Angela Bassett. I mean, Angela Bassett looks amazing for the fact that she's like 61 years old or something. But that's not enough to recommend a movie. And it's a little bit patronising of a thing to say. So, um, yeah, I, I was hoping for something better with Otherhood. Um, and, and I did definitely didn't get it. And I, and I can't really recommend it it at all um i mean of the three that i've talked about here i would say fury um better than the second one uh the red sea diving resort and and otherhood you can definitely skip um that brings us then to the end of popcorn movies we will be back in just a moment though to preview some upcoming films in the section that we call coming attractions what have we got for coming attractions uh, I've got a list. I can throw them at you if you want. Like when Once we start. Once upon a time in Hollywood's out, isn't it? Oh, yeah. is it on the fourteenth? I think. Let's just double check. Yeah, but the four the fourteenth doesn't count. Aren't we doing this weekend? Ooh, we... I can mention it. I think we should but mention it's just it otherwise it'll be out by the time we do the next podcast, wouldn't it? Sure. Yeah, it's just we've got to nail this down because I was kind of looking at what comes out by the weekend for that weekend's release, and when they do early previews, it kind of fucks yeah, it up. Yeah, it does. Uh... We can just mention it. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention yeah, it okay. first, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. if you've got anything cool. to say, and then I'll get into the other ones. Right. So back we are with coming attractions. This is the section where we talk about films that are coming out within the next week, or in this case, week or so, uh, because sometimes they try and trick us up, they try and trip us up with preview releases, um, which basically are done to gross to inflate the opening weekend of a film, which I learnt the other day, which should be pretty obvious, really. Um, so Pete, we're going to work how we worked last week. I think you're going to throw some at me, and I'm going to let you know whether we're excited or not. 
Yeah, well, last week we started with the absolute massive one, which was uh, Hobbs and Shaw, which we're going to get to a review of later on this episode. Uh, this week we've got another, well, yeah, next week technically, but in this week's roundup, we've got another one uh, that's pretty huge and unavoidable, and that was the new Tarantino film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is one, Paul, where I think my excitement levels are going to be low to negligible because I have long ago stepped off the bus in terms of Tarantino. However, my attendance to a screening of the film is uh, utterly inevitable because um, whatever Tarantino's making, it feels like I want to be part of the discussion, um, if not sort of banging the drum. Where do you stand? I am 100% with you. I think I'm not a huge fan. I still haven't caught up with Hateful Eight. Um, I struggle with what I've been reading about how he's treated his female cast members. Um, yeah, I don't think he's as exciting filmmaker as he's made out. He's made out to be God's gift to the second coming, essentially, of filmmakers. He's not that. However, his films are probably a damn sight more interesting. There would still be an interesting watch, I think. And like you, my attendance is mandatory because I want to be part of the discussion. Um, so we will bring it up on the show, but don't expect a Tarantino love in on that episode. <laughs> it might be good. In fairness, yeah. that, that being said, I like DiCaprio. I like Brad Pitt. Uh, I like um, Margot Robbie. I, I, I like the cast involved. Um, so that could carry it for me. But yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. And haven't been for some Yeah, time. and that all having been said, you know, both of our attendances are going to, you know, be an inevitability and also a feature review on this show is inevitable yes. as well. So <laughs> we need so to we'll preview be it, it yes. and we need to yeah. talk about it. Uh, something that you probably don't need to see, I, I'm going to I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, uh, on wide release coming this Friday, I believe the night, uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain, um, this one directed by Simon Curtis, who brought us stuff like My Week with Marilyn and uh, oh, God. Gold. My Week with um, Marilyn. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, so this one stars... Well, I'll see how you react, Paul, as I tell you detail, drip-feed you detail. So so you've got you've got the director there, you've got the name of this film, and then you've got uh, stars Kevin Costner, Amanda Seyfried, and Milo uh, Ventimiglia, the guy who talks sort of out the side of his mouth. Um, and this one focuses on the relationship between a racing driver and his dog. Where do you stand? What else is coming out next week? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I dug into this bit, this one a little bit until I kind of got bored and just thought, no, I, I think this is just going to be one of those films that happens yeah. and I forget about it. Uh, then we've got another wide release. This one, Blinded by the Light from uh, Govinda. This is director of Bend It Like Beckham, Shadda. isn't it? It is the director of Bend It Like Beckham. Thank, thanks because you got me out of a hole with pronunciation. Wish, that's what I'm here um, for. <laughs> Yeah, set in 1987 Britain under Thatcher, a teenager comes of age through the music of Bruce Springsteen. Are you a fan of The Boss, Paul? Uh, Yes, I guess. I I say that. I don't often listen to Bruce Springsteen. I like the singles. I won't turn them off if they're on. Um, I'm not a huge fan of feel-good British cinema, um, in all honesty. So despite the buzz and reviews seeming quite good for this, um, it's not a film I'm particularly excited about, um, although we'll probably catch it for the show um, if I'm not busy. Yeah, yeah I, I think I'm with you, Paul. I, I feel about Bruce Springsteen this thing like where, because I'm a contrarian a lot of the time, I'm trying to grow out of it, where like so many people sort of tell you how great he is that I'm not really interested anymore. <laughs> so um, maybe I've sort of reacted to the film as a, as a sort of function of that. Um, yeah, as you pointed out though, the early reviews are decent, so we should probably check it out. Uh, a few more to wind up here with then. On Netflix, we've got an interesting-ish looking short documentary series called The Family. 
Um, this one tells the story of an enigmatic Christian group that wields enormous power in Washington, D.C. in pursuit of its global ambitions. One of those sort of water cooler type Netflix docos that they put out that, yeah, people may maybe, you know, chit chatting about for, for a week or so. Um, we'll probably circle back to this, I'd imagine, on the show because there's probably going to be enough there. Who knows? Um, because I don't know a lot about the filmmakers on this one, so I can't guarantee the quality of the documentary. Does that interest you, the sound of that? Yeah, I'll give it a go. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't, Corridors of Power, Shade Corridors of Power is always interesting. It's like walking around my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, not like walking around your house. Uh, also out, um, Playmobil the movie. Um, we're not going to even talk about I'm that. I'm out. I mean, uh, what, the Sonic... what sort of just yeah? The Lego Movie's done. They're just ripping it off. Just move on. Yeah, yeah. Stop <laughs> yeah. it. Your your cash cow doesn't yeah. have any milk to give. It probably does though. That's the depressing reality. Um, then we've got one called The Sun Is Also a Star. This is a romantic drama that um, I don't know that I'm going to go for too much. It's uh, you look through the the director's previous work and they're quite sort of schmaltzy sort of Nicholas Sparksy looking things um, we'll, we'll see uh, and finally there's one called Opus Zero this is a debut feature from a director writer called Daniel Graham um, it stars Willem Dafoe as an actor I feel like we've talked about quite a lot on this program um, he's a composer who arrives in a re- remote Mexican village where his va- father previously passed away Um, He then goes or sets about looking for a missing girl, missing woman, uh, with the memory of his father sort of hanging over him. It's a character study. It's Willem Dafoe. Are you in? Are you out? Yes, Willem Dafoe. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, it it feels like at this point Willem Dafoe's going through a sort of hot streak. Not that he hasn't done great work in the past. The the new Roger Eggers Eggers film, The Lighthouse, looks incredible as well, and he looks amazing in that. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, exciting times. Um, you've forgotten one, Pete, that's out next week as well. Um, you may have heard Tell of it. Tell me about it. Um, you may have heard of it. Apocalypse Now, the final cut, is back in cinemas for one night only next week, which I'm... Oh, I'm going. Yeah, yeah. incredibly excited about. So it's a new cut of the film, um, apparently shorter than Redux. I think, for my money, Redux was probably a touch too long, and I think that does seem to be the critical consensus of the, the longer version of Apocalypse Now. So, yeah, what an incredible opportunity to see another classic film on the big screen, and I can't wait, and it's so cool to see... Have you seen seen the trailer for it yet it's, it's running in front of a couple of films i've seen it's amazing just to see I an apocalypse been. now trailer in the cinema like, it's great because <laughs> like, paul you can't ask me that question genuinely and not know the answer because you know i'm that tosser <laughs> who turns up to the film as it's about to start yes. because i don't want to be advertised <laughs> yeah. that and that means i miss a load of trailers as well which is probably to my detriment but yeah it's funny we come out of the preview section or coming attractions and the one that that you and probably me to be fair is getting most jazzed about is apocalypse yeah. now <laughs> being reissued in the cinema but it shows you know it shows that that kind of reissue and that thing that's I guess been been revived a bit over recent years has really got an audience and and you know people are keen to revisit to be honest and I think the thing is as well this summer has just been so crap at the box office that I've been kind of jaded by going to the cinema and I think that didn't help is I think I may have mentioned this before I did a weekend where I did uh, the Matrix on Friday night don't look now on Saturday night and then Jaws on the Monday night and I was just like, well, the cinema's going to be shit now unless I see Apocalypse, until Apocalypse yeah. Now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, spoil at the moment. Yeah, for, everything yeah else. for sure. Um, but that pretty much brings, well, that brings us to the end of um, Coming Attractions. We'll be back after this brief, brief break with the feature reviews of Hobbs and Shaw. 
So we are back for feature review number one for this week's show. This one was previewed last week. You probably heard of it. It's got a bajillion dollar advertising budget. It is Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Um, to set this one up just a little bit, we've got, of course, uh, yeah, Dwayne Johnson is as returning as Hobbs uh, in the, the one of the the key roles here, alongside Jason Statham. Uh, Jason Statham, of course, plays Shaw. Then added to the mix, we've got Idris Elba as a sort of enhanced human being called Brixton. We've also got um, Vanessa Kirby playing Shaw's sister Hattie um, and coming on the sort of um, escapades with the pair of those lads. Uh, we got Helen Mirren, who's enjoying swearing and stuff and slumming it a bit at the moment, which we'll come back to maybe. Uh, Isaac Gonzalez, Eddie Marsden, and, and a host of other uh, side characters. Yeah, setting up in terms of plot is a little bit more difficult because I was never quite sure why this thing existed. I guess it's to strengthen this bond and relationship and sort of the star wattage of, of putting Statham opposite uh, Dwayne Johnson. I mean, can you give any I insight think it's into the intricacies Vin Diesel and Dwayne here? Johnson fell out big time? Um, <laughs> right. Which I think has something to do with this film existing. So, kind of from the right. studio's perspective, it keeps um, Dwayne Johnson or The Rock in the franchise um, and means they don't have to work together because uh, I think Dwayne Johnson meant, I think I was reading something about this the other day. His comment was when there's two alphas in the room, uh, people don't always get along. And he didn't say much more than that. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then, of course, you've got this sort of, um, you know, uh, surprising alliance, this odd couple alliance between the two of them at the centre of this movie, which allows the movie to spend a great deal of its runtime just having them sort of throw quips and jabs at each other about how they dislike each other. But even though they dislike each other so much, they're going to go off on adventures and try and save the world. Before we get into our views on this one, uh, here's a little clip. Luke Hobbs and Decker Shaw. We've got unfinished business. Shaw's sister took something from me. A virus that could wipe out half the population. And I want it back. You wanna tell me just what we're dealing with here? It's my sister. Family business. When it's the fate of the world, it becomes my business. This whole thing sounds really dodgy. Look after your sister. Listen, I'll handle it. The only way we survive is working together like a team. Let's do this. Buckle up, fat boy. On my three. One. Ah! Woo! So I was very excited about this, I'll be honest. Like, the Fast and Furious franchise are films that I came to quite late, I think. Well, I think the first one I watched was I think the first the first one I've never really liked because I found it as a rip off of Point Break. They for me they got good around Part Five. Uh, weirdly enough, when the Rock joined when the Rock joined them, and then they've been ridiculous fun ever since up until I think Number Eight, which I think we disagreed on on the show. So I was quite excited about this film. I'll be honest. I like Dwayne Johnson. I like. Um, um, Jason Statham, even though I nearly forgot his name then, um, and I was quite—I was ex anticipating this being, you know, it was never going to be a masterpiece. The script was never going to be great. I was anticipating the set pieces being good, and the leading men having a lot of chemistry. Um, however, for me, and I've literally—I came out of this about three hours ago, so I've only seen this this afternoon. For me, the, uh, most of this film just fell horribly, horribly flat, Pete. I, I thought you mentioned you mentioned before the clip the quipping of just like well they just fucking stop it like it just no one speaks like this in real life I don't think they had any chemistry I don't think the quipping was particularly funny and I got an irritated by both actors which has never happened to me before um, quite early on in the film 
any response to that did you feel the similar way or? yeah yeah i mean the, there's been established for a, a number of years now this idea that jason statham is a pretty capable comedic actor as well as being you know a bona fide sort of action star and i would co-sign that idea because you know you've seen things like spy where he was really really probably stand out like the funniest yeah, well, person sure. in a movie yeah. full of quite a lot <laughs> yeah. of funny people so he can do that but i think people need to slow their role a little bit because you put him opposite dwayne johnson now dwayne johnson is a lot of things to a lot of people and he's you know incredible guy great personality amazing physique you know draws huge box office more than almost anybody else on planet earth but what he is not is an adequate comedic actor so you put the two of them opposite doing this quipping and this back and forth the whole time and it just feels so like line reedy it, you know it, it it's so transparently the script rather than an embodiment of actual characters and then you've got like not only just between the two of them but the uh, there's a sequence that sort of sticks out in my head where Dwayne Johnson talks to Vanessa Kirby who's uh, Statham's sister and he starts the conversation by saying something like um, do you like to dance yeah this isn't going where you think it is <laughs> What? Who said what? And then she says, what? You mean like the foxtrot, the two-step? And he's like, no, I mean like the tango where it takes two. And it's like, what yeah, are we what doing? What are you actually talking like, is about? This the, yeah. Is this like the worst rap battle ever committed to film? I, I don't I don't understand how this stuff made it into the final cut. So like the dialogue is a problem uh, when we're so dialogue heavy. And can I just, yeah, can I just bring that then onto my my sort of second main point um, and I want to hear what you think about this Fast and Furious the franchise presents this movie there is scant Fast and Furious stuff in this movie there's very little in terms of like automobile big action which is what I'm here for I mean there are probably what three car chases in this movie and it runs two hours some um did that it strike you as you were watching this like this is not really a fast and furious movie because what this is becoming is a superhero franchise and fine and it's sort of like stealing a lot of stuff from the you know the, those movies but I, I don't think it's a particularly good one no i, I, I tend to, yeah, i don't know that hasn't that didn't bother me as much i see where you're coming from i think they've been moving away from the kind of traditional fast and furious like if you look at if you speak to purists and people's there's people out there that actually like for the third fast and furious film tokyo drift which is insane to me because like yeah, okay, fair enough you are one of those people that's out there uh but yeah if you if you talk to purists then they would say the series has been moving that way for a while so that that didn't massively bother me um but yeah the, the dialogue was was a big problem for me the set pieces and we need to talk about fucking trailers here because the set pieces i really like the finale it got it got me quite excited and nearly and it nearly won me over and then i stayed to the after credit scenes and remembered why i hated most most of the rest of the film um because some of the jokes here when he calls him hugh janus towards the end just some of the jokes are just terrible so like written by 12 year olds it was terrible but the, the set pieces the set pieces i think for me nearly rescued the film if i hadn't fucking seen all of them in the million trailers they released for this film so you are literally waiting you're like okay well there's going to be and there's it's impossible to spoil this film because it's already been spoiled by all of the trailers so as my wife said to me when we came out she said well at one point I was just like oh well the the, the Samoan bit's next because that Samoan bit was in the trailer now the, the Samoan bit that's in the trailer is an awesome fight scene I really enjoyed it where you get the rock leading all these his Samoan family and they're beating the shit out of people with blunt instruments it's a lot of fun it would have been a lot more fun as a surprise the rock 
the rock on a tow truck hooking a helicopter would have been a lot more fun as a surprise. There is bits of every set piece in all of the promotion for this film and it's so over-promoted that any surprises are gone. So that it might have rescued some of it for me if that hadn't, hadn't been in there. The only surprise I had was Kevin Hart appearing and that scene in the plane is one of the most irritating film, film scenes in a film I've seen in the last five or six years. <laughs> but I mean, Ke- Kevin Hart shows up and again, it just feels like throwing a lot of you know it, shit it feels like I mean Ke- Kevin Hart shows up to do a Kevin Hart skit yeah. for like a couple of what, minutes and then disappears for almost what the this feels like is something that actually Dwayne Johnson I think has not really been guilty of in the past what this feels like is when you especially when you've got the scene on the plane so you've got Dwayne Johnson Jason Statham and Kevin Hart and they're all quipping at each other and you sit there and go guys this must have been so much fun to film but it's not interesting to watch like it's just it felt like they're having such a great time on set they've forgotten about the audience and it's just one big in joke that no one else is in on and for these guys for this film to fall flat for me was a was a surprise but it felt flat it felt very flat yeah I I think just on you know, sort of a multi-dimensional way, it made me think about better things. Like it made me think about better Dwayne Johnson movies, better Jason Statham movies, better movies that pull off action set pieces. I mean, there's no way you can watch the helicopter sequence and not think this is a sort of second division what Tom Cruise did in The Last mm. Mission Impossible. So like you're constantly reminded of, of better things. And I think this it, it sort of thematically comes up quite a lot when we talk about disappointing movies is like you can't be sat in the cinema thinking, oh yeah, I remember when like Crank was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> or like, yeah, Statham was great in Spy. Or can we get you know Dwayne Johnson to do another Moana movie or something? I, I just yeah, there was there was so much about it that just felt like a, a release for the sake of a release uh, under the banner of Fast and Furious, and that's what it is. I mean, that's what it is. Let's not you know kid ourselves this is a money-making operation it's a huge franchise at this point and it's going to put bums on seats and we went to see it but even with all of those things having been said you hope for a that's bit the thing more, and right? don't get me wrong i'm not gonna more. you know and there are I've read things on letterbox of people going oh it's just cinema stops slagging it off and it's just like no i'm not you know I, yeah i like my i like my independent stuff i like my house stuff but i also I would. I want to. I'm at pains to say I expected to enjoy this film, so I'm not going in writing yeah, it off for that yeah. reason. And like, but it's got. But it's also got nothing to do no. with it. I mean, if if you if that were true of, of you or it would it was true of myself, then it would be that every time we encounter an action movie, a big budget action movie, we just yeah. slag it off from some sort of you know high horse. And that's not the case at all. I mean, I think maybe one or both of us had Mission Impossible, the the previous one, on our six, top yeah, ten absolutely. of the year list. Yeah, at the end of last year. So, yeah, just do better. I mean, do better if we're going to trot out another entry in the franchise. And, you know, me more than you may be, particularly coming off eight. But, like, I like these movies. They do a great job. They they do a lot more than this. And they've just lowered the bar to allow this new duo to sort of hop over and, and, and introduce themselves into our lives as a combination that I don't think we necessarily needed. And I don't want another Hobbs and Shaw movie. And if there is one, I don't think I want to go and see <laughs> no, it. I'm pretty much with you, to be honest, because if, like, if it's more of this, then I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, I mean, and and you know that's we're skipping over loads of stuff, and it's fine because the movie's not that important. But like, v- Vanessa Kirby's good in this movie, you know, like the brother sister thing's cool. You could have done that, right? You could have done that. You could have done a movie about The Rock and his Samoan entourage. Could have done that, but it's just a load of like half finished ideas all bolted onto each other, and the the final result is a bit a bit clunky to say. The yeah, a, a disappointment for me. So that brings us to the end of, of this rip-roaring review of uh, Fast <laughs> Look at and Furious. the energy in that review at the end. <laughs> but yeah, we've still got more fuel in the tank. So we'll be back after this short break with a review of a completely different kind of film, this time called Holiday. 
So yeah, this is the film Holiday. Um, Pete, set this one up for us. This is from the writer of Border, whose name I don't have to hand. Um, do you? <laughs> uh, yes. Give me one second. Eklov is a, a surname. Uh, Isabella Eklov is the, the female director of this movie. Um, as you said, you've seen Border. Yeah, I, I thought think, Border was... Right? Border was... Yeah, it almost almost jumped into our next feature, actually, in the top five films released January to June, but didn't quite make it in there. Um, yeah, so Border is is a very dark, um, fantastical drama directed by... I think Thomas L. Ferguson directed Border, unless I'm otherwise mistaken. Um, but, yeah, so if you've seen Border, you should have an idea of the tone to expect from Holiday. Um yeah, so uh, as you, you asked me, I'll oblige. Yeah, to set this one up, the movie involves a, uh, a kind of uh, bruising, chilling love triangle featuring the trophy girlfriend of a petty drug lord. He, uh, the, this drug lord takes his girlfriend on a trip to, I believe, like a Turkish resort. Yes. Um, and while there, she bumps into another character who seems to offer a slightly better possible future relationship in at least one way and that way being he's not an you know unforgivably horrible yeah, shit not complete uh, the, the guy that she's spending her time with though has this sort of vice-like vice-like grip on sort of all of her interactions with other people and even talking to this second man risks putting her him maybe both of them in uh, real peril um, what we get from there is yeah it's icy cold it's um sort of objective uh to the point of seeming almost dead eyes dead eyed at, at times i think this movie and um before we get into any further thoughts let's hear just a little clip you're on holiday yeah me and my friend a bunch of friends together uh, in the villa Sasha? So, yeah, as, as you mentioned, it, it being icy and cold, it certainly is all of those things. I think to, to kind of set the scene, really, and I've read comparisons to kind of the work of Gaspar Noé, which I don't think is too far off the mark, to be honest, or kind of Michael, I think you mentioned Michael Haneke, I think possibly in the Instagram post. So we're talking, we are talking very, very dark um, in, in terms of subject matter here and in terms of how the characters are presented to us. So I would, it's almost fair to say that there isn't really anyone with any redeeming features in this film, Pete. Would you agree with that? Ah, uh, I would say that there is that you sort of get in this movie like little glistening like corners of humanity within individual characters, where you can see that like these people have um, the potential for some sort of redemption without that ever being the focus mm. of anything that the director's doing. Really, here it, it's it, as a human being watching this movie, you're almost like desperately willing them to draw on the good inside themselves in such a situation is because I like set it up by saying oh it's all icy and cold and it's so ironic that those are the first adjectives that come to mind in a movie that's set you know in dazzling sunlight with all exterior and interiors just like bathed in in yeah rays of light um you've got these kind of white buildings reflecting that light back everything seems like this picture postcard like idyllic uh sense of a, a beautiful expensive luxurious uh trip 
but we know that the people there, at least the people who aren't the dominant male figures uh, and criminal male figures specifically, are so far from being free that it's that it's like quite profoundly upsetting for most of the runtime of this movie. Um, of course, we, we can't really skip over the fact that one of the big talking points, I guess, in the people who are talking about this movie who've seen it already is that there is a pretty graphic and prolonged sexual assault scene in the centre of the movie. Um, and that is treated with, well, you know, the Gaspar Noe comparison that you made uh, just, just a moment ago is, is probably out there because people have seen, you know, what happens to Bellucci's character in Irreversible or something well, like that. Well, there's another parallel um, there as well because someone walks in on the scene here and then walks out, mm, walks out of shot again, which can't be a, which can't like be a coincidence, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, um, so there, then you have the sort of um, other interpretation, I guess, of the movie, which is that this movie is uh, rather hateful and needlessly violent, and particularly towards female characters, or uh, specifically the female character at its centre. Um, this character played by an actress called uh, Victoria uh, Carmen Sonner, who I think does a fantastic job of showing us sort of uh, different facets of a character who has been polluted by the world around her. But I guess to throw back to you, Paul, that scene, not only on its own, I guess not in isolation, it doesn't exist in isolation, but the way that the director deals with violence and violence against women and and the threat of violence, is that something that you found off-putting in a sense that you wouldn't want to recommend this movie to other people or is it something that you felt off-putting because you're a human being and you know it, it doesn't feel good to see people I mean suffering? in terms of would I recommend this movie to other people there's a handful of people I recommend this movie to I certainly wouldn't recommend this movie to everyone um, and I can understand why people wouldn't necessarily take to this film um, if you look at the film at face value now I would say the whole film is hard to watch. Uh, the rape scene is is particularly graphic, um, but it is uh, of good authority speaking. Uh, look and look this up. It looks like it's real. It's not. It is it is apparently still simulated, um, and it's an effective scene in another in a, in a very effective film that is unashamedly looking at the dark side of people's psyche. So if you don't want to watch that, I fully understand why people would want to look away. Um, and ultimately, I think the film is the film is definitely meant to repulse you. You are not meant. It's not meant to glamorise the violence. It's not meant to, to glorify these characters in any way. Um, it is not doing that. Um, the fact that it's hard to watch is is, is a good thing. Um, that being said, I was utterly captivated for the whole film. I was glued to the screen from start to finish. I thought the performances were incredible. I thought the script was fantastic. Um, and it's you know I can kind of compare it to the first time I read um, American Psycho, for example, where I knew what I was reading was horrible and, and I know what I was watching here isn't pleasant, but I was glued to the screen and I thought the film was was a very, very powerful piece of work. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I that's a, a whole discussion yeah. for another episode, <laughs> I guess, the, the Brett Easton Ellis uh, yeah. angle. But um, yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, on the director herself, the, the movie is is bold not in a sort of showy or show-offy sort of a way but in just sort of a very um self-confident and assured although way. it is beautifully it's shot in films to it the cinematography is very it, oh, good no, uh, yeah uh, but, far far from saying anything different to that but like the, this is a film lest we forget that starts with what looks as like a sort of interpretive dance mm. sequence um and yeah the recurrent i think it comes back in the movie the um 
the track Cinnamon. Yes. Um, and I said this when I briefly talked about this on a previous episode, but like that track is used at the end of Inland Empire, the David Lynch movie. And, you know, David Lynch, one of my favorite directors of all time. And I think that movie is, is phenomenal. But I've never thought about that, the lyrics of that piece of music, anything like as hard as I have having seen this mm. movie. And I mean, maybe I'm overstating this point, but like, there's something just so right about the selection of that track, this subject matter, and the arc that this character goes on during the the course of the what an hour and a half, maybe it's not, it doesn't hang around, hour and twenty minutes, are pretty short, I think, holiday. Um, yeah, it, yeah, I, I'm I'm so with you, Paul, and like I, I've been throwing out my views on this for a, for a week or two because I just feel like this is a this a bit of a rev, it was a bit of a revelation to me really um such an assured debut from this director as a director and such a great central performance and really confronting in a way that is not just about you know uh people can say like oh what's because yeah you know when you see those discussions online that like oh what's the most disturbing yeah. film you've seen or like the most upsetting but it just seems so like juvenile because it's just about you know there's no real um craft to just upsetting people you know that the, many untalented directors can upset people yeah, yeah. but what the director has done here i think is is far and beyond that um and it's something that i'll be thinking about probably for the rest of the year and and you know this is a 2019 release if uh, if i'm not mistaken. yeah 2019 uk release it's just appeared on the movie amazon channel i think is where you can find it at the moment um yeah i just yeah i just think it's it's one of those films that if you, if you have if you have an interest in cinema then you owe it to yourself to watch this because it's it, yeah it's it's no holds barred as you say it's very easy to just cause upset for the sake of causing upset this film isn't that um i can see why people would read it as such you're reading it wrongly um it's just it's a very very insightful study into the into the dark side of the human psyche which exists unfortunately you might not be comfortable with it you might not be comfortable watching it it does exist um and people like this mm. do exist and it's a very interesting study about how someone being surrounded by this all the time does it have an impact on them can they change and it's it's an interesting take on that very interesting take on that i think so yeah a, a lot to recommend um not for everyone if if graphic rape seems to disturb you then steer, please steer well clear of this um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit there and say you should watch it if you don't like this kind of material but at the same time for anyone interested in film i think it's you should yeah and i mean i mean there is a slight distinction to be i think like graphic sexual assault disturbs everyone yes, but yeah. i mean Sorry, there are, yeah. yeah of course there are going to be there are going to be people who who just want to give it a pass for you know not subjecting themselves to that and you've got to respect that as yeah. a decision because you know uh, of course people are going to respond in different ways but yeah i i would not be surprised if we're talking about this one again um well certainly the end of the year and when it comes to sort of top tens and stuff like that so yeah big recommendation i think from both sides of the divide here and uh that one's called holiday and as paul mentioned that's available to uh rent via the amazon platform via movie i believe um yes we will be back then in just a moment to run down our credits for this week which our uh, which are i should say our top five films of the year running january to june right after this 
Right, back we are. Uh, top five films of the year, January to June. Uh, I'm going to make a start. We'll fire through these pretty quickly, I think. Um, let's try and keep it exciting for you. My number five film is... Film? I meant Pete rather than film. My number five film, Pete, uh, is a film called Destroyer, um, directed by Karen Kusama, starring an almost unrecognisable Nicole Kidman um, in, uh, I would say, a hard-bitten police thriller stroke drama that has a twist in the tale. Um, this film blew me away at the cinema, to be honest. There's just everything about it. I thought it was incredibly well shot. And Nicole Kidman's performance, I thought, was it's the best I've seen her in years. She's definitely playing against type. I thought the direction was tight and the twist, there is a twist in it. Um, there's more than one twist in it, actually. The twist in terms of the story, I didn't see coming. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was a fantastically well-executed thriller with a great central performance from Nicole Kidman. Hence why it's sitting at number five. I've yet to see it a second time, but I'll be intrigued to see where it sits after that with obviously once you know the story but yeah I really really took to this film uh, in a big big way yeah I, I didn't take to this one as, as much as you did clearly but then as I explained the last time we discussed it I watched it on a plane so it's probably <laughs> yeah. not really a fair assessment on my side I should go back um, first for me then coming in at number five is a film that is probably better than number five but has slipped down the ways basically because it's been time uh, this is The Favourite which came out on January the 1st of this year so just made it into this list it's a fantastic piece of work we talked about it at the time quite a lot um, yeah kick the year off with a bang um, I would say the great comic timing here like freewheeling sort of swagger not only from the characters who are like relishing the roles that they've been given uh, particularly Olivia Coleman of course is, is almost always a standout when she's involved but also the camera work in this thing the sort of high angles the swoops down corridors the fisheye lensing that he does like there's so much stuff that sort of feels um, yeah just just like a whole load of fun to make but not in that way that results in a saying but we weren't having any fun watching it because I had a lot of fun with this movie um, yeah uh, I think everybody involved on the acting side did, did really good work and maybe um, it hasn't stuck with me quite as much as I thought maybe it would, but it's still a fantastic piece of work. And yeah, The Favourite's my number five. Cool. Uh, my number four is a film called Capaneum, which is a Lebanese film directed by Nadine Lebaki. Um This film focuses around the story of a child who has been, well, essentially, a child, I won't spoil too much of the story, the child decides to sue his parents um, for giving him, quite frankly, a shitty upbringing um, in Lebanon. Um, it's just a fantastically, it's a beautifully shot drama with an incredible uh, performance from, incredible child performance from the kid here whose name I haven't got written in front of me, which is pretty terrible of me, uh, but look it up by all means. Um, yeah, just a very, very powerful film. Um, and yeah, beautiful in many, many ways. Just, just fantastic. It's one of the films that stuck with me in terms of one of the more one of the more emotive films that I've seen this year for sure and it's stuck with me in a big way um, so yeah check it out I think it's streaming now as far as I'm aware I was lucky enough to see it at the cinema but I think it is still stream it is streaming now so yeah if you haven't seen Capernaum check it out it's one of one of the most powerful films of the year so far for me yeah it, it hasn't quite made my top five but it definitely will make my top five at the end of the year of cutest babies yes. 
because the baby in that movie is ridiculous. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, coming in at number four for me, uh, the, I might mix these around by the end of the year, honestly, when I've gone back to them, but this one is the Claire Denis movie, High Life. Um, High Life dealt with this mission into deep space with a load of young um, sort of virile com- convicts who have no return ticket um, back to Earth and are there basically to procreate with one another and continue the journey so that human beings beings can travel further and further and find what exists down the line and what seems to exist is a giant moral fork in the road at the end of this movie uh, which is gonna yeah stick in my memory for I think a long long time when you get that kind of penny drop feeling at the end of high life that you may get which is the sort of understanding of what's being implied by the end of that film um yeah, it's a film that sort of makes you stare directly into the void and, um, you know, come out of it with something to sort of chew on in terms of how that makes you feel if you really engage with the issues that Denis is dealing with here. Because Claire Denis is not a sci-fi filmmaker in, the, in a, any kind of the strictest sense. She's not trying to make a sort of big, um, flashy space movie. What she is trying to do, though, is deal with ideas and ideas that are sort of in a in a floating tin can in the middle of the yeah the blackness. And, and this thing, by and large, worked really, really well for me. And I think Robert Pattinson was really good in it as well. Um, yeah, it, it, Mia Goth too. A, a few standouts actually. Andre Benjamin. Um, but yeah, High Life might end up higher at the end of the year. I don't know. It depends on second viewing. But I really liked it. That's I'm with you. I think four. that was probably number six or seven for me on this list. But yeah, could end up higher for sure. Uh, staying with the theme of space, at number three for me is a documentary, Pete. Uh, this is Todd Douglas Miller's Apollo Eleven, which absolutely blew my socks off. Um, as we mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago it's made entirely of archive footage um, and some incredible large format archive footage of the mission to successfully land on the moon Um, and it's one of the most exciting sci-fi films I've seen in recent years as well as being an incredible documentary I cannot recommend this highly enough Um, maybe it should be higher on this list but again we'll see at the end of the year Um, this kind of top three was kind of all interchangeable for me the Apollo 11 if you haven't seen it just go and do it have you seen this Pete? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I, I saw it at home. But yeah, this is one. I, I guess I really liked it. it. I think it's on my my top 10 or so uh, for this list. I really, really liked it. And it's entirely in my wheelhouse. I guess maybe we were spoiled slightly with, with First Man. And like a lot of the footage using First Man was uh, very, very similar footage. Um, but, and then sort of treated dramatically. I don't know. For whatever reason, it hasn't quite made my top five. But like if I made a top five documentaries of the year so far it would be right up there because it's really really great work and it will sort of last last or stand the mm. test of time I yeah, think no, this absolutely, one as well absolutely so that then takes me to number three on this side um, number three is the film Piercing um, I talked about this one I think a couple of weeks ago on the show it's a two-hander between uh, Christopher Abbott and Mia Vasikovska um, and it's this movie all about a sort of power dynamic between a pair of uh, completely disparate, different individuals, one of whom, or at least initially different individuals, one of whom is the Abbott character who's set out to um, hire and then murder a prostitute and has a sort of raging in a conflict um, going in. And then Vasikovsky's character, who is the girl who's hired, the woman who's hired for this, uh, unbeknownst to her, this event that's going to happen. And then what we get is a sort of shifting power dynamic that is dealt with with like all kinds of sort of relish and intelligence, I think. I mean, I mentioned when I talked about it before that this comes from a uh, source short story or short novel from the same uh, writer who wrote... Um, oh. 
deeper, deeper, deeper. Cut your legs off with razor oh, wire. Audition. Um, audition. Audition. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Audition is right. Um, the yeah. Game we so, um, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just throw out some clues and you'll get there. Um, yes. So. Uh, you know, you get that we're in dark territory, but there's like such a sort of flair and flourish to the way that the, the the visuals are handled, that framing's handled. There's, yeah, a kind of Brian De Palma feel to the way that he sometimes cuts up the screen on like sort of puts two pieces of action uh, simultaneously in different parts of the screen and stuff. Yeah, re- really cool, um, kind of outstanding for me. And I think like one that people haven't really paid that much attention to but is on Netflix at the moment so check it out that one's piercing at number nice. three uh, my number two is a film that was your number five or four I think the favourite uh, Yorgos Lanthimos um, yeah I can't really add much more to what you've said except it's incredibly shot I, it's for me possibly no pun intended my favourite Yorgos Lanthimos film although I've yet to watch it a second time um, and it's just yeah I like. I think I'm, I'm pretty proud of this term and I didn't steal it I promise Yorgos Lanthimos uh, Theatre of the Absurd uh, I think is unmatched in modern day filmmaking and the word auteur certainly applies to Yorgos Lanthimos um, yeah and I just thought everything about the favourite was just an absolute joy um, and that is why it's my number two uh, on this list Pete so number two for me um, and I've got a, you know I won't mention any other movies in case they're on yours number two for me is uh, a movie called Under the Silver Lake that I think um, has, has divided opinion somewhat uh, so this is from, if I'm not mistaken, the director of It Follows Correct, in yeah. um, The Myth of the American Sleepover. And and it kind of carries on the um, sort of languid uh, cinematic style of that director where he sort of, his camera at least, sort of drifts through the world, observing things at a sort of slight remove. Um, but in Under the Silver Lake, that's used for the purpose that it feels like it was sort of born to be used. That is to follow Andrew Garfield's character, who's this like... Uh, aimless sort of pathetic (laughs) drifter who's in LA and trying to sort of piece together what he believes to be signals and signs and messages from the universe and he's kind of stoned half the time and sort of um, like a a movie like um, Inherent Vice did a pretty good job of like communicating the actual mindset of someone who's not quite on the ball given the amount of substances they're taking into their body I think Andrew Garfield in something like this and something like 99 Homes is like absolute peak and I wish he did just more yeah, of that inherent, stuff Inherent Vice is a good touchstone for this actually I hadn't thought of that when I was watching it but I see where you're coming from for sure yeah yeah and it, yeah it just engaged me it's like it's a weird movie it's a baggy movie it's a movie that like could cut a bunch of its scenes and be more streamlined but I don't think this is a director who cares about that if you watch the myth of the American sleepover particularly like it follows has got a different sort of thematic thrust and you know <laughs> quite quite literally at times um, but uh, if you watch yeah his, his first feature then I think there's a lot in common between the two um, differences here that yeah we've got this one protagonist sort of moving from sequence to sequence and and just like it created in me this sort of really woozy feeling um, because you start if you don't you know halfway through decide that this is all wanky nonsense and you don't care then you start to really go along with him and you just get pinballed around between these other sort of supporting characters there's another cool role also for Riley Keough and that's always nice to see 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I really like this. And I think that there are a lot of people who don't. And I think there are a lot of people who think it's it's kind of, um, you know, a career falling to pieces. But I very much hope it isn't. No, I, um, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I don't think I didn't like it as much as you did, but it's certainly far from a career falling to pieces for sure. Um, I think, yeah, it's one of the most divisive films of the year without a shadow of a doubt in terms of things I've read about it. Um, but more excitingly, that brings me to my number one film released from June to January to June uh, in 2019. And that, Pete, has surprised me, I'll be honest, and may well surprise you. This is Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, Booksmart, which for me, I talked about the I talked about the favourite being an absolute joy. It wasn't as much of a joy as Booksmart was for me. I have. I don't think I can honestly say it's been so many years since, for me at least, every joke in this film landed. I was a minimum I had was a beaming grin from start to finish on this film. I think the writing is, and it's not a particularly original concept. They're kind of gen, arguably gender flip super bad, I guess, in some ways. Um, but it, for me, the film is so much more than that. The the performances are superb. You've got Caitlin Deaver and Bernie Fieldstein in the leads, um, who are great. They play off each other really, really well. And then just incredible supporting performances um, from Billy Lord, who is, I think is the standout here. But then you've also got Skylar Gisondo as a Jared character. Just everything about this film worked for me. And I came out of it. It took me quite a while to see it because I was like, it can't be that good. It's just another high school comedy. Um, it was that good. And I just, I, I can't speak highly enough of Booksmart. Absolutely adored it absolutely adored it yeah this was a toughie because this was my number six Ah, and we were only going to do a top five (laughs) not not a top ten and you know whether we'll do this at the end of the year or not i don't know but if we are to do a scenes of the year countdown (laughs) the sequence with uh the swimming pool uh i just think is is way beyond what i expected Mm. from olivia wilde's debut and that's not you know to throw shade on her but you just it, it kind of um, you know, sideswipe me a little bit that scene, and and yeah, really effective stuff. And for, like you said, Paul, like just like making a movie that is consistently laugh out loud funny is way harder than mm. people think, and this this achieves that. Um, number one for me, I don't really need to talk about it too much. We've done it already. Um, I've had a hard time shuffling these around, but I've gone for uh, this movie that we've just talked about, Holiday, okay. um, that's just had a release over here. Basically, because as I was looking at the movies in my sort of top ten or twelve, I thought, what is it? that's going to stay with me or has stayed with me most not just because I watched it not very long ago but also because it just um, moved me or affected me in a very specific set of ways and that's why I landed on this one as my film of the year so far Um, as I've said previous on this episode I just think as a as a feature debut from a director it's kind of astonishing um, the work done here and it just is a film that like drags you into deep waters and holds you there and that doesn't sound like a fun Friday night for a lot of people and I would suggest that maybe it isn't um, but if you are of the mind to sort of challenge yourself um, and, and deal with things that are a little bit tough and see how you come out the other side then yeah, Holiday's a huge recommend. And like, again, I'll go back to it and I'll see where it falls. And we'll both do this with all of these movies, I guess, by the end of the year. And, you know, that that bigger list that we do then. But um, for now, uh, yeah, just to run through, we'll, we'll go through our two lists, Paul, in case people have missed anything. So I had five, The Favourite, four, High Life, three, Piercing, two, Under the Silver Lake, and one, Holiday. What was your uh, five? I had five, Destroyer, four, Capernaum, three, Apollo 11, two, The Favourite, and one, Booksmart. 
Nice. And then we were saying, Paul, just to put a capper on this, we were saying before we, we started the episode that it feels like, maybe to both of us, that this year is, um, we've got here a collection of, of really good movies, but maybe we haven't got standout great movies so far. Do you feel that way too? Uh, probably with the exception of some of the ones on this list. I mean, I, I, yeah. yes, I don't think it's been an incredible year. I think we've got, uh, hopefully, a, a better year, uh, well... A better last six months of the year ahead of us with stuff like the lighthouse coming out, Nightingales out. Um, there's some decent horror coming up. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's films to be excited about, but no, certainly I think by this time last year there've been a couple of films that come out that had really really blown me away. Um, and probably with the exception of probably my top three on that list, um, nothing's jumped out at me in the same way that some films had last year. So I don't think it's been a vintage year thus far, but it could improve. Mm. we'll be jumping out of this episode for now but before we do we do want to mention as we always do about this time that we're contactable through twitter um which is getting you know uh getting going gathering steam and follower numbers are on the up and up and that's great that's at strangers cinema we've also got an email address if you want to send us anything longer longer questions and so on that one's strangers in a cinema at gmail.com we've got facebook we've got the other socials and that we've got instagram it's lovely uh, Paul, anything else to add before we bow out on this uh, one? No, that's it from me, so thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>